Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from the Tudors and Vikings creator Michael Hurst about his new epics drama Billy the Kid. Patrick Somerville, creator of HBO Max's Station Eleven, and Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet, co-creators of Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth, all under the spotlight this week at Series Mania in Lille. Series Mania, the TV drama festival set in Lille, France, returned this week as a full in-person event for the first time since the pandemic, with an array of public screenings, masterclasses and conferences taking place alongside the industry-focused Series Mania Forum. In today's episode, we hear from a string of creatives whose work featured at the festival, including Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner and executive producer of HBO Max drama Station Eleven, and Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lumet, co-creators, writers and executive producers of Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth. But first, the Tudors and Vikings creator Michael Hurst delivered a showrunner masterclass at Series Mania, discussing his methods and beliefs, as well as his new epics and MGM international co-production Billy the Kid. He spoke to Nico Franks about his approach to historical drama and the excitement he feels at unearthing untold facets to the outlaw whose real name was William H. Bonney. So Michael, tell me about your approach to historical dramas. So my approach to to writing historically based material, which is what I normally do, is to plunge into the history, surprisingly, uh, to to do a lot of research um, nowadays, I also have a historical researcher who uh, can point me in different directions. But, but essentially, I have a very academic background. I was at universities for 10 years, and so the research part is, is uh, one of the most fulfilling, one of the most enjoyable parts of the job for me. Um, and out of the reading, there's a certain randomness about the reading, but out of the reading, which may not be to the point all the time, it could be around the subject, it's, it could be the music of the time or whatever. And I have a very open mind when I start and I'm hoping that things will sort of fall into to, to place and, and, and stories will emerge and characters will emerge and thoughts will emerge and connections will, will, will emerge. And I've often found that strangely enough when I read historical accounts of whatever period I'm dealing with. It's what the historians choose not to put in the main text, but in the footnotes, which are the most interesting thing for me. The footnotes are usually things that don't quite fit in with their thesis, uh, or they can be really interesting um, personal details about the character. or the. And I've got a very good antennae for that, because I'm looking for storylines. I'm also looking for to enrich characters. You know, historians aren't particularly interested in character traits. They're not interested uh, in digging too deeply into the psychology of characters because that's not what they're supposed to do because that's uh, not historical. Uh, They don't know. But for me, that's obviously where I want to go. So it begins with quite, and that's usually quite a long process. You know, that can sometimes take months of, of reading and thinking and, and just beginning to shape the material. And I write pages and pages and pages of, of notes. In fact, I wrote the notes for Elizabeth on a long sheet of wallpaper, uh, which was subsequently framed by someone. But uh, so things begin to take shape. And then I'd write, a, if it's a, a TV series, I write a, a Bible. Um, and 
bring these half-formed characters into the drama and where they begin to come alive, where they begin to interest me as people, not just characters. Um, so that again is a fairly lengthy process because when I actually start writing the scripts, I want to have a very firm, strong idea of where I'm going, what the arc is of the characters and the story, um, and what I need to dig into further and, and develop uh, further. So, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. So I do have a process, uh, strangely. I like to break the process up as well. I don't ever want to, to, to get predictable. Um, but by the end of it, so actually writing the scripts probably takes me less time than the other parts of it. And then, of course, in, as is the nature of things, um, that once the thing is greenlit and it's real, uh, and once other people are looking at the scripts, directors, producers, there's a whole new thing that comes into play, which is possibility. How, is it possible to do this? And uh, um, so I, it's a process of rewriting. So the scripts, the characters are reborn again and again and again in, in different circumstances. And, uh, but hopefully through those uh, processes, they do take on very nearly a life of their own. I mean, obviously I did... 89 episodes of Vikings, so by the end they were my friends, you know, I mean, I would go into my study in the morning and, and ask what they'd been up to while I'd been away, but uh, uh, I think, you know, the most important thing, and we may get onto this, but it is, is that the audience empathises with the characters and identifies with the characters and, and loves, in inverted comma, the characters. And it's my job to give them the opportunity to do that, and that's the only way that the TV show shows work. And to what extent do you do that in isolation? You mentioned the researcher, but do you work with a team at any point? No. No, I, I think if, you know, if you have a writer's room, you, you become a psychiatrist, not a writer, I think. You know, so you're, you're dealing with lots of other people's problems and not just your own. So, so no, I, partly because I didn't ever intend to work on TV. I mean, I was a film writer and um, after Elizabeth, uh, a young American producer uh, came over to England and asked if I wanted to write a, a soap opera about the, the, the Tudors for TV, which I thought was an absolutely dreadful idea. And because uh, it's always been, you know, I grew up at a time when TV was cheap and nasty, you know, and you wanted to work in movies. No self-respecting person would work in movies. So I said, well, what kind of, what's the standard you're looking at? Show me, send me some samples of, of good TV shows, um, which is a little pompous of me, I suppose. But anyway, he sent me loads of tapes, uh, which were actually all tapes of the West Wing, so, which was very clever. And it meant, I, I guess, that he said, look, you have to be entertaining, but you can be serious. You know, so that, so, so my, but my only real input until we get to directors and, and, and so on, is my is Justin Pollard, my historical researcher, and I ask him if I write something or think of something, a storyline, or I will always ask him if it's plausible, if it's authentic, and if it's true. And I never ask if it's accurate because I don't believe in historical accuracy. And and uh, 
and this true thing is, is difficult to define, but we know what we're talking about when we talk amongst ourselves. I mean, does it ring true to you? You know, so, so he's a, a bulwark for me. He's, he's, I need him very much to validate uh, some of my thoughts, which even at the time to me may seem weird, or am I taking this up some yeah, bizarre? Um, but apart from that, yeah, I do it on, on my own. Yeah, so where do you do that? Do you have a set place or do you mix things up? Normally speaking, I write at home um, because I don't, um, like, I can't write in, in hotels. And, um, although if I'm doing rewrites, when, we, when I've worked in Ireland, which I did the Tudors and, and Vikings in Ireland, um, they gave me a beautiful apartment in Dorky on the water and, and the sea, so I was very happy to sit watching the sea. In there. But somehow being at home, um, slightly cut off living in the country, having a kind of shed in the middle of the garden, which even my children are not allowed to, to come into, even though they can see me from the house, they have to phone up if they want to come in. So it, it does feel a little cut off and, and I'm able to go into that slightly dream space that I think you need to if you're, if you're a writer. And you mentioned there you don't believe in historical accuracy, so mm. could you expand on that for me, please? Well, I don't think there is such a thing. If there were such a thing, then most historians would agree about it. And in fact, no historians ever agree to anything at all. And, um, and the fact is, um, well, I'll tell you a, a little story about this, that my uh, grandma, when I was a child, my mother and grand grandmother and I were going to the, uh, uh, to, to the Bradford Alhambra uh, to watch the pantomime and it was a dismal winter afternoon and it was pouring with rain and we were waiting on the steps to go into the theatre and there was quite a bit of traffic and a motorcyclist was coming down the hill and something happened and the, he lost control and slammed into a car quite close to us. My mum and I weren't actually watching, but my grandmother was watching this event and it wasn't so far away. So, but she was called into the court and because there was a trial about this and she said everyone who we'd all seen what happened, everyone had a different story. Nobody could agree on what actually happened, although we all watched it. We all saw. And, and to my mind, this is what historians uh, do. They, they tell a story from a point of view, you know, which is fine. But, and the other problem with them is, of course, they pretend not to be, but they're really pseudo-novelists. Uh, history is written, not all history. There's a great French um, historian called Leroy Ladry that just gives you the information and the facts and the texts and things. But our, the Western tradition is to write it like a story. You, you, the history is written as a story. And as soon as it's a story, the storyteller is making choices all the time. And the choices alter the narrative. So anyway, that's an extremely long way around of, of, of saying something quite simple. You know, so I, and I don't pretend anyway I'm writing, that I'm writing history. I'm writing drama and drama, you know, you expect to have to make choices and, and, sh and shape. Life has no shape. Drama is all about shaping. Um, so, um, so I'd never pretend that, that, I, that this could in any way be accurate, but it is always based on research.
tell me about Billy the Kid and your relationship with Billy the Kid. Well, when I was um, eight, six, seven, eight years old, I used to run to school. It was a local village school and uh, ran across the fields. This is a no clear, <laughs> as you know. And uh, I would very often be in my head riding a horse and being Billy the Kid. I mean, Billy the Kid fascinated me from as I can't, I don't even know how that began. I've checked with other people actually of my generation, and, and apparently Billy is a fancy figure for a lot of you know, guys uh, my age. Um, so my, you know, there was something very charismatic. The, the name is charismatic, it's brilliant anyway, but, but the idea he was very young, you know, and yet he was kind of brilliant. Um, he did amazing, he did amazing things. And it was all in my head, it was also to do with the romance of the West, you know. I mean, I think in, in the show, it's visceral, the show, but it never loses that sense of the romance of the West, which, which I, 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 you know, is, is very important, very important to me. And Billy was somehow encapsulated that, you know, I suppose the danger of the rim, but it, it, it was part of my imaginary world when I was growing up. And why is the story of Billy the Kid relevant today? Well, probably in a number of ways. Uh, one of the most obvious being, and we talked about this right at the start of the, the, the process, I talked about, about it to Michael Wright, that it's, this is not just a story of uh, an outlaw and the American West, it's the story of immigration. That Billy uh, was Irish and he and his family, his mother, father and, and younger brother, came over to, went over to New York from Ireland, forced out by the famine and English landlords were then almost forced to leave New York. There were no jobs uh, anymore, so many immigrants. And there, there was um, a sort of American government campaign to get people to go west, to colonize basically the west. And people were promised jobs and good houses and everything. And, and certainly when Billy and his family went, uh, there were no jobs. There were precious few houses. Some of the places they went to had only been founded a year or two before, so there were building sites. So this is the story of, of, uh, of immigrants struggling in, in a new and, and incredibly difficult uh, land uh, with many of the Americans very hostile uh, to them, uh, but also uh, Billy identifying with the Mexicans, the Mexicans who were being basically thrown out by American capitalists from their own uh, lands in their own country. And, and, and Billy spoke, learned to speak Spanish and identified with their struggles and identified with them. So here we have, you know, Americans and, and, and uh, Mexicans in, in, in conflict. And uh, so that has a sort of, that, that has a, a certain resonance as I suppose Billy as a, a, an outsider has a, has a resonance. I would only say as a sort of word of caution that I, I get kind of worried slightly that people want things to be relevant or contemporary as a kind of add-on now, that somehow you can add a few elements and then it's contemporary. You can cast it in a certain way or you could, you know, and then, oh yes, now it's, you know, it's like things that happened before yesterday are no longer contemporary or no longer... Uh, uh, relevant. Um, but it's not true. The relevance comes out of the human story. 
um, you know, it's not just, it's, it, it's not sort of advertising a point of view or something. I'll just very quickly just explain something. When I was trying to sell the Tudors, so the story of Henry VIII to uh, Showtime, uh, Bob Greenblatt, the head of Showtime, was a great guy, said, look, we want to do this, I want to do this story. But, you know, it, BBC costume drama goes down well in New York and, and in the East and the West Coast. But in middle America, no one wants men in tights. You know, how am I going to sell this into America? And, and I said, well, this is about kings. This is about everything Americans don't know about, you know, or care about. History's bunk, okay? Said Henry Ford. So... I said, well, think about it this way. The thing is, it's not a king. It's a guy who runs, who's got a big company, maybe car company or something. He's got two sons. The older one, who's the privileged son, the spoiled son, and he's going to uh, get the business. And the other one, he doesn't care about so much. Uh, and he doesn't care what he does. And he even gets this, his eldest son matched up with uh, the daughter of very wealthy, another wealthy family. Okay. Then that privileged son, the elder son, dies. And he's got to have his younger son. And, uh, uh, and he gets the younger son married to his brother's fiancée. He doesn't ask him whether he wants it or not. He doesn't. And the younger son is not, it's not a happy period in, in his life. But then his father dies. And he's 22 years old. And he's inherited the company. He's a multi, 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 multi-millionaire. He can do anything he wants, absolutely anything. He a 22-year-old who can do anything he wants. Now, does that seem like something that Americans might, you know, understand the dynamic of that and be interested in that? And, and Bob said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and um, obviously, Billy the Kid is, uh, you know, he, he does violent things, yeah. uh, which some people might not necessarily agree with. So how do you go about making the audience feel empathy for a character who was an outlaw? Obviously, a lot of people will think of, of Billy as a psychopathic killer. That's how he's normally been shown. Um, and someone who, uh, you know, did bloody and nefarious deeds. Um, but I don't believe that's the story. And I wanted to, as I've done with all my other shows jump into the history, find out who he really was, why things turned out how they did. And of course that revealed that I thought I knew things about Billy the Kid. I hardly knew anything about Billy the Kid. I mean, who knew that Billy the Kid had this beautiful singing voice, that he played musical instruments, that he lit up a room when he went into it, that people loved him. He, he, the Mexicans loved, no Mexican would ever fire a shot at Billy the Kid. Um, he lost his father and his mother, and he absolutely adored his, his mother. Um, and life was incredibly hard in, in those days. So building up the story, so you understand who he is, you understand his difficulties, and you totally understand how he became an outlaw, and he didn't want to be. He always, Billy always wanted to go straight. So that's when empathy begins. With understanding, empathy begins. But it, on top of that, of course, you get this incredibly talented 
guy. Now, he might, might have been talented in, in shooting. He was incredibly talented in shooting, but also horse riding, you know, other things. And together, all these things build uh, a character who I found to write about was compulsive. You know, I'd hoped that Billy would deliver for me a great character. I mean, he's done that a thousandfold. And we also cast a, a brilliant and sensitive lead character. So this is not the Billy we've seen before, and it's not the Billy that we'd expect to see. And he is sure not a psychopathic killer. And just finally, how, if at all, has the pandemic affected the way you work? The, um, the pandemic has been uh, difficult for everyone. Uh, in theory, it hasn't affected me because I just live in my shed and write all the time. So, you know, it doesn't. Um, but after two years, I realized that I'm going slightly stir crazy. And my wife and I were discussing it just this morning. And, and I say, you know, how are you feeling? She said, just anxious. I said, yeah, I understand that. I feel anxious all the time. I, I, I don't know whether I've put that into my... Actually, my writing is a release from anxieties and, uh, you know... Um, but no one's life has been particularly normal. And without really understanding it yourself, I think a lot of people's lives have been changed, uh, whether forever or... I, I don't know, but I suspect... Uh, a lot of people have had their lives changed for forever, so it's impacted. But I wouldn't be able really to describe exactly how it's impacted me. We'll leave it there. That's all we have time for. Thanks, Michael. Okay, pleasure. Thank you. Michael Hurst speaking with Nico Franks. Also attending Series Mania and chairing one of the sessions on HBO Max was C21's own Michael Pickard, editor of our Drama Quarterly magazine, which itself made a physical return at the event as a print publication. If you were in Lille but didn't manage to grab a copy or want to read it online, visit dramaquarterly.com. Patrick Somerville, creator, showrunner and executive producer of HBO drama Station Eleven, which was among those screening in Lille, spoke to Michael ahead of the event about the series, based on the novel by Emily St. John Mandel. Set in a near-future world facing the wake of a deadly pandemic, Somerville started work on the project before COVID-19 hit, but completed production amidst the real-world contagion. How has it just been the last few months? I guess you weren't ever planning to release a, a pandemic-related series in a pandemic. So how how has it kind of been? Well, it's a pandemic, <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm living I'm living pandemic life with my kids and my wife back in Los Angeles, and um, we're just sort of reconnecting after you know you make a big show. It takes it takes a long time, and we were I had to go to Canada, and so we were separated for a lot of the time. So I've been spending a lot of time with my family and. Um, really enjoying watching how how much of the work that we we tried to do seemed to translate over really well to the audience and that that doesn't always happen i guess i say it that way you, you can have the best of intentions but a lot of times something diagonal and different happens but this one it really just feels like it's connecting with people in the way that we hoped that it would how did you hope it would connect with people what are some of those kind of themes that the show talks about that you hoped you know would resonate with audiences well really just emotionally in a, in a very macro way i think you know you can you can poke at, at station 11 and think about it in all sorts of different ways but the fundamental thing that makes it go is emotion shared emotion i think too and it's it's kind of what the show's about but it's also what the show does i think um when it's working right so 
I mean, I think I've gotten a lot of pretty powerful emotional reactions um, from people that I know and don't know who have watched the show and really cried a lot (laughs) or felt a lot. You know, I think in the pandemic, it's one of the many strange alien offshoots of this experience has been uh, just sort of like a general emotional malaise. I don't know if that's true for you, but there's something about just getting stuck uh, in the way that we are that makes it harder to feel in the normal ways and I, I'm, I'm happy if the show has helped at all with people with yeah. that regard. I mean how did you come to the project first of all was it the book and and how did the book kind of make you feel you know when you read it perhaps that you thought this would make a good TV show you know not knowing a pandemic in real life was about to arrive. I loved the book I loved Emily's voice um, I love the kind of the new idea that is present in the book which is like what if sure we do a big disaster story but we don't really do the disaster we do before and after the disaster and we kind of hold off on that thing that this genre t- typically does which is it ends up sort of getting deeper and deeper into an investigation of pain <laughs> uh, while it's happening <laughs> and I'm sort of like yeah we, we could do all number of things but this is interesting because it's it's about rebuilding and art and and I think that sounds really pretentious to, to use a word that's in the show but I loved it because it reframes art kind of just as like problem solving and communication. Like it, it reframes the idea of art back into the space where I think we actually use it, which is integrated into our daily lives. And I loved that. But I loved also the giganticness of the scale of the story, but also the way that it kind of operated in small local spaces too. For me, as a short story writer originally, that kind of just presses all my buttons because I love little tiny moments, but I love like Return of the Jedi and gigantic uh, space operas too. So it's kind of stretched on, on both ends of the spectrum in a way that a lot of projects don't. Um, when you're reading a project with a, or a book with a view to turning it into a TV show, I mean, does, does it kind of scream out to you reading it? Oh, this is a, this is how I might do it. Or is it only kind of, did it, did it kind of lend itself to TV? Do you think the book and, it, and need a lot of work? It did to me. I mean, I, it, it seemed exactly what I wanted to do. And it was, that was years away from actually even getting the book. Uh, I read it when it came out in like 2013 or 14 in there. And it wasn't until after Maniac was done, the show I made uh, for Netflix, that I heard that it was maybe going to be available for a TV series or they were struggling with the movie side. So I went and I found the producer and I was like, look, this is what I said to him actually is this is not a sci-fi story. I don't know what kind of path they had gone down exactly, but I was I really leaned into the humanism when I was talking to Scott Steindorf, that producer, and I, I just said kind of what I just said to you too. The scale can be huge, but it's about the connection between uh, these six or seven or eight really important characters. Ultimately, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Maniac, and you've done Leftovers and and uh, Made for Love, which I, I really enjoyed. I mean, they're all kind of big world events on a small scale, or or kind of futuristic, maybe sci-fi events that you look at in a different way. So, is this kind of the next stage of kind of a thematic canon that you're kind of building for yourself, or what is it? I mean, I'm not th- <laughs> if that's true. I definitely we don't think about it in that way i just think like what's exciting to me yeah. um and i do there there does seem to be a relationship uh between all the projects so far which is to me it's always what's most interesting is our world but a little bit different or a lot different in the case of maniac but 
I think that really puts a tool in my hand, storytelling-wise, that I really like, which is just defamiliarizing stuff we take for granted and looking at it again. Um, there's so much great drama in little things, but there's so much content. Uh, I, I, I'm of the opinion that, that if you make a thing and spend the years and the time it takes to do this, you got to make it special. You got to make something that no one else would have made or tried to make. So that's that's usually my my. My guiding, it's all it's also just my heart. I'm just sort of like, yes, that's fun and exciting. Let's do that. And so I guess those initial conversations when you're thinking about adapting it for TV, I mean, what kind of things did you keep from the book? What did you change? And, and what were those reasons behind, you know, maybe those places where you did drift? Well, a huge one is is Kirsten and Jeevan's relationship. And I think if you read the novel, you can tell like the, you open with Jeevan for, and you really get connected to him, but you're with him alone. He's alone for 50 pages or something on the day the world's ending. And I just fell in love with that character. And then I also wished that character existed more deeper in the book. And and I think a very immediate great idea that, that this little mini room we had generated was just to put them together, Kirsten and Jeevan. It's the best way for two characters to meet. And what if we just imagined a little bit more of an entanglement? And that really just suggested a lot of the future of the story. If once we did that, then we owed a whole lot more. I loved also the airport, and I, I, I loved how Emily used it, and I wanted just to use it even more if we could. And I wanted to, in the adaptation, to really do the Shakespeare. You know, I knew that we had to in, in visual storytelling. You can't um, just kind of write a three-line aside about how they went and did the show. You got to do it. So once we were doing that, uh, I think, you know, changing it to Hamlet made more sense for this story. Once we knew we were going to go a little deeper with Tyler and the prophet's story as well, that, that just all made sense. And we, Shakespeare is overwhelming in my opinion. And so I think one key of the show and not a bad overwhelming, but can be too much. But one key thing in the show about the Shakespeare we decided was like, let's keep it very contained you know we can everyone knows there's a lot of plays and each of the plays are really long but what if we just focus on like one or two scenes and do them a couple times in different contexts and really let people watching the tv show experience them but not be overwhelmed by them that was the hope with the shakespeare and i guess you know from watching the first episode through to you know later episodes it's obviously there's there's time jumps and, and timelines and flashbacks i don't know what you would call it perhaps are we in the present flashing back or are we flashing forward? Oh, I loved that. I loved <laughs> that, though. It's exactly right. It's that we started with young Kirsten and Jeevan, which feels like now. And then the now in the show kind of drifts as the episodes go on until it's kind of undeniably year 20 is the now. But that w that wasn't how the audience first came into the story. So we, like Kirsten, I think as you watch the show, are sort of stuck with this strange feeling of like the past being present, which is what life feels like to me, <laughs> actually. So I think it was a really unique and strange way to, I don't even, I think you're right. I don't, we never use the word flashback because it wasn't. There are this like sort of two competing timelines that were both now for a long time. And then I think in episode seven, they really, they really fuse into, into one thing for the rest of the way. And, and is that complicated for you then in, I guess, in the writer's room to, to work out with so many, you mentioned like seven or eight kind of main characters and, and trying to make sure they all have their screen time in, in different timelines. Is that? Is yes. That <laughs> <laughs> it's re real complicated, but it's, 
I, I'm a big fan of, uh, in, of episodes of television as an organizing unit. And I, I think a lot of times, especially um, with the amount of things that come out these days, people say, oh, we're just making a 10-hour movie. I do not believe in that. Well, that is not what we were doing. We were making 10 one-hour episodes. And when you do that, when you really embrace that way of thinking about a limited series, you, you can then start putting some of the characters as kind of like kings or queens of that episode. And you can handle the the incredible diversity of character through the idea of, like, well, episode three is kind of Miranda's episode, and episode five is kind of Clark's episode, and and nine is kind of Jeevan, and seven is Jeevan, Frank, and Kirsten. So if you think about the episodes in terms of which people are we servicing here, it started to get a little bit less complicated. It still was quite complicated. Yeah, yeah. And I guess because you're, I was going to ask you about the, the 10-hour movie thing, but I guess because of it's episodic, it, that allows you then to, to dig more into those other characters. It's not just Kirsten's story, for example. It's you get to have those different perspectives of this world that we're now in. Yeah, those things are definitely related to me. I, I have other reasons why I don't like the 10-hour movie thing, but I, I'll just say this. The reason I like movies is that they're not 10 hours and, and they end, uh, you know, around two. And like, that's a thing. That's a kind of story. And so you, it's just different when you get into 10 hours. And character is one thing that makes it different, but also just like the flow of drama and which which uh, muscles getting worked and which get, is getting rested over the course of the 10 hour experience. It's just a different thing. So um, I'll go to my grave uh, refuting the idea of the 10 hour movie as a as a concept. You know, with HBO Max, you know, what was it like working with them as as opposed to perhaps HBO, the channel? Was it, was, you know, were you given a lot of more freedom as it's a streamer primarily or was it kind of all one unit? How, how did that work for you? I mean, it, it was it was kind of integrating over the time between selling the show and now. And mm-hmm. I think it was great. I mean, it was it was a challenging show. We also worked with Paramount uh, Television uh, as the studio. We had enormous logistical challenges. We moved from Chicago to Canada. We made a new crew halfway through. Um, we brought on new people. We lost people. We we stayed. We had some people all the way through beginning to end. Um, but the studio and the network were... I would say if you zoom out, there were probably a lot of reasons to get afraid of this show. Uh, we had shot two episodes and a real pandemic came. And I think there's a there's a reckoning there. Uh, do we really want to do this? Do we want to commit all the resources and go down the road, not knowing what world's going to be sitting there waiting to receive it two years from now? And everyone said yes. So how could I say anything but positive things about the the bravery that's inside of that choice because it's not it's not like a i don't know it's not game of thrones like you get there it's some shows spend this much and and commit this much and come out and don't do anything or aren't good or are are atonements uh for what's happening in the world and this could have been i think but I think the HBO Max in the end decided that they liked what they had because they saw those two episodes, but also the idea always was to make a show about joy, you know, not lean in. We, that was the idea before the pandemic came and that remained the idea. So we kind of just kept doing what we were doing. 
even though the, the world was changing wildly around us. And there's something stable in that, I think. Talk us through some of those logistic kind of challenges you then, I guess, yeah, filming two episodes. How long are you on kind of pause for what's going through, you know, the production while you're waiting to start back if you are? And, and what were those decisions you had to make to get back up yeah. again? Well, so we prepped all fall in Chicago, uh, fall of 2019. And I think cameras rolled, you know, like January 7th, I think 2021. And I don't know what exactly was happening in the zeitgeist in the UK at the time, but I remember probably around like day 10 or so, mid to late January, someone in the crew came up to me and showed me a link to a story about what was going on in, in China. Um, and, and he was like, hey, kind of weird. Like it's, it's happening mm-hmm. for real. And I was like, oh yeah, but no, it isn't. And, and then one one day, a couple of weeks later, I was, this is starting to become clear that something was indeed happening that was going to be an international event um, and not a story we read about. But we had refitted this big conference center in Chicago called the McCormick Center to be our hospital. And it's that scene in episode one when the drone is looking down and there's all the ambulances and cop cars everywhere. And then, you know, there's uh, orderlies running around and uh, chaos. And our prop guy, I was flying back to LA the next day and our prop guy came up to me and he, he was like, hey, you should take a couple of these. He had a couple, what I now know uh, as KN95 masks, but then, you know, they were, uh, they were props. And he was like, you should take some for the plane. And I was like, what? For me? And, you know, there's extras running around wearing them. And he was like, yeah, because this is, is real. And I was like, ah, I don't need those. I, that That's a good snapshot uh, into consciousness around February 15th in America. And maybe just me missing the boat. Because I think there were people starting to change their behavior pretty dramatically. We got back to L.A. and Hero and I were editing the episodes in the first couple weeks of March. And the... The day things really felt like they changed in the U.S. was the 13th of March. Uh, it was Friday the 13th. And in the week leading up, it was more and more clear that, that it was going to be a massive thing. But Hero and I were just editing away in, in a little editing bay. And one of our producers, Nate Madison, came in at the end of the day. And he was like, you guys got to go home. And he this little look in his eyes we were like, oh, there's something else happening. Now we've been in our little hole focus, but actually the world the world is calling. And we all went home and that was the last time we we worked together in the same space until all the way to next fall and January and February in Canada. So in the meantime, you know, we thought we were going to come back in June and keep shooting around Chicago and in the woods out there. We came, we made the decision to move to Canada somewhere in the middle of the summer uh, because Ontario numbers were just dramatically lower and it felt like the only safe way to make the show. And we got to Toronto on the ground and built a new crew through the fall and started shooting in in February. One crazy detail though is we built that apartment and we had built it in Chicago for the end of episode one when when Jeevan and Kirsten come in and meet Frank and we broke it down and trucked it across the border to Toronto and they rebuilt it. And so day one of shooting, I was standing back in the same apartment that I had been standing in in Chicago, only we were in Toronto now and it was a year later and all the same actors were walking in a year older, but we were pretending it was an hour later. And then, I mean, as a showrunner, I guess you're not going to get many more tougher schedules than that, are you? I mean, what kind of, you know, pressure, responsibility, what were you feeling? 
feeling on, on that just to get it over the line, I guess, at that point? Or were you still thinking, is this even going to get finished? Well, no, I think by the time we were there, I knew it would get finished because we had, again, sort of committed so many resources to getting there. The cast was there. We were ready. I felt strangely more at ease uh, in part two than I had ever felt as a showrunner because I think because of that year, uh, because of that time, because I had sat with the scripts and reworked them and thought about how to execute them so much, you don't usually get that much time kind of meditating on the creative process when you're making a TV show. So as, as, as hard as that was to go there and be there and to be in this kind of weird COVID bubble, I, I felt sort of a strange um, sense of certainty about how to make the show that I, I hadn't, I, I only kind of had, I would say, a year before. So something, I learned something in that year that, that I needed, at least personally, to run that show. In that kind of intervening time, did you make a lot of creative changes to the scripts or how the story would play out? Or, you know, considering you're in a real pandemic now, were there things you wanted to add in and and kind of yeah. senses and emotions. We didn't make huge changes to kind of the basic idea of which what was happening in each episode. But we did, you know, episode seven, I think, became a uniquely informed episode about what it's like to be trapped in a, in a place with, with a couple of people for a really long time. And that feeling of like going crazy, but also falling in love with everyone around you that, that just happens with that intensity. And then eight, nine, and 10 weren't really done. And so that summer I wrote, well, with Sarah McCarran, one of our writers, uh, episode eight, with Will Wagle, one of our writers, kind of rethought nine. And then in episode 10, there was sort of, you know, there was always going to be Shakespeare in the finale, but, but the kind of most outrageous version of it is where we ended up. And I would say that was the last script written. I was reworking that all the way during production. Yeah, it just, it just sort of, it was always what we were going to do, but I think you can't live a year like that and not uh, not be a little bit more attuned to a certain set of feelings that are out there in the world. And you mentioned uh, the, the drone shot of the ambulances in episode one, which is, you know, it's a great shot. I mean, was there a particular visual style you and, and Hero, the, the lead director, kind of wanted for the show and he set down in those early episodes? Absolutely. I mean, Hero and Christian Spranger, his DP, and the whole team, and Ruth Ammon, our production designer in Chicago, Mark Colby, our VFX supervisor, there was, there was a very big group effort in defining how the show would be shot in those early months. And I, and I think credit to Hero and his team, this kind of objective point of view that sometimes pops into the show, whether it's a, a drone shot like that sliding sideways in silence or a sudden flicker of time change that doesn't really give you much help, but, uh, but it's kind of terrifying um, in the power, I think, of of seeing those ferns and greenery flashing uh, across Chicago. That stuff was all kind of the earliest conversations about how to make this show. And, and I think we executed them really well in Chicago. And it was a gift really, because then we, even though we only had two episodes, we knew what the show was uh, in spirit going forward from there. And I think we recreated in different ways again and again, the the kind of the, the, the visual idea of the show. When we got to Canada, there was another extra chapter with, with Jeremy Padesba and Steve Cousins working to build the year 20 space, uh, which, uh, Daniel Grant, I should say to our other DP and all many other people. But the 
idea of what it looked like outside in the summer in year 20 was not something that we got to in Chicago in the dead of winter back in, in early 2020. So that was Helen Shaver is another director who really just sort of exploded that outdoor world feeling, um, what the greenery was like, what it just felt like in year 20. That was the new challenge. And, and so that was touched upon conceptually, I think, by Hero and his team, but that was really part two that really came to invent that that element of the show. And I mean, how much then was physical kind of on set stuff? How much was VFX? Did you do a lot of VFX maybe for the, the future scenes, you know, where it does flash up with it and it's, you know, the old track in Chicago covered in kind of... Oh, that was real. That was all that real. Was real. We, dressed, we dressed the L in the dead of winter, Ruth Ammon and her, t- her team in the art department. We She trucked in an entire forest full of ferns into a theater and dressed that whole theater like that. So we, we tended to lean to practical uh, just because it just feels more real uh, to me. But there's a there's a balance always. And this is where Mark Holby, our VFX guy, was so good. You, you find the balance, you know, sometimes it's 70-30, uh, sometimes it's 90-10, sometimes it's 50-50, depending on the challenge. And you concept it ahead of time and you know exactly what you're doing months in advance. And, and you tend to have success, I guess, because you've concepted it ahead of time. Now, it didn't always turn out true that we knew exactly what we were doing months in advance, but this show and all the creatives involved are, are people who are big believers in practical work. The art department just built world after world after world and uh, really delivered, I think, a unique look uh, that I haven't seen before. And I mean, just I'll leave you on this, but I mean, what what are kind of your just final thoughts having gone through that whole process over the last few years and and what do you hope viewers who still are yet to watch it perhaps are going to come to the show and and sort of take away from it i guess my hope is that that people realize it's a really fun show is uh it's about serious things but it's not a slog or our intention was never to make uh homework or lessons in hard emotions and trauma you know we have parliament banging on the on the way into year 20 and i think there's just fun all throughout it. And that to me goes back to the core motto of the Traveling Symphony, which is survival is insufficient, you know? Yeah, it was hard to make the show. Everyone's had a hard few years for sure, but like the point is we need to find what we love out there and what's fun and laugh with other people and be together with other people in art and music or whatever it is that we do that brings us together. So. I, my hope is that the, for the people who haven't found the show yet, they hear this. Uh, it's a good time. It's it's not it's not a lot of sad sad crying. Uh, there's a lot of laughter as well. Patrick Somerville speaking with Michael Picard about Station Eleven. Also screening at Series Mania this week was Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth, based on Walter Tevis's novel and the film starring David Bowie. Co-creators, writers and executive producers Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lume spoke to Michael Picard about the series starring Chiwetel Ejiofor and Naomi Harris in the lead roles and the challenges of also filming during the pandemic. So I guess, you know, I spoke to you last time about Clarice and, and that was obviously did really well and it was picked up in the UK here. So it was great to see that sort of getting pushed out. How, how have things been for you both since then? You've obviously been on Star Trek and, and doing different things and, and now The Man Who Fell to Earth as well. It's been amazing. I mean, you know, obviously it's been an incredibly strange and surreal time to be doing all those shows in the, in the middle of a pandemic. But I spent the last year of my life in London on Man Who Fell to Earth and it's been, a, it's been an amazing thing. It's been an incredible 
incredible journey. We're still sort of on it because we're still in the middle of posting the show. Um, it's just a beast. And so, I mean, obviously you've been working together for a little bit now. Where did The Man Who Fell to Earth kind of fall into that conversation? Was it the book or were you re-watching, you know, the film and, and thought, hey, let's let's do this? What was that kind of journey for you both? Well, um, uh, Sarah Timberman brought, had the property and she brought it to us. And I think Alex said, Jenny, are you interested? And I said, yes, without <laughs> thinking at all, without all. And Alex, I think, was like, hmm. Only because I think he knew what a monster beast, completely insane thing it, it would be. I think that the two of us, and also with everything that was going on in the world, were really at the place of how did we get here? How did we get here? I mean, I have faith in human beings. I wouldn't speak for Alex about whether you have faith in human beings today, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Alex. Yeah. It depends on the day. It depends on the day, right. So it was a time of, and it still is, which way is up? Who are we? How did we get here? What can we depend on? And I think it's, as writers, the only thing you can do is write your way through those questions. I mean, you don't land on any answers, but sending the questions out there, for me, it was extraordinarily helpful. Extraordinarily helpful in a time of weirdness. So this does this predate the pandemic or was this something that you kind of born in that crazy time and you know really when tv industry was on pause wasn't it and and now you're coming back with this huge project that it just looks insane we can talk a bit about how you made it you know in a bit but i mean it's it's quite an ambitious project to be planning in a pandemic that's for sure uh it did predate the pandemic actually jenny and i started writing it um in 2018 in the in the early 2018 and at the time it was at hulu and we i can't remember if we wrote one or two episodes there it may just have been the pilot i I honestly can't remember but then it moved to what was what was then uh cbs all access which then became paramount plus um and we were i don't know five scripts in to the season when the pandemic hit so everything stopped and in a way because there were so you know when you're when you go through an experience like that you're looking for the silver lining wherever you can find it and the silver lining for us with with man who fell to earth was that the pandemic actually allowed us to stop and take a breath without feeling the freight drain of production bearing down on us and it forced us to step back and ask some larger questions about the story that we were telling particularly given what was suddenly happening around us and it wasn't that it wasn't already designed to be a show about human beings and the choices that we are making and have made and will be making, but it, it, it certainly didn't exist in the context of a, of a global pandemic. So once that happened, it allowed us to dig deeper in some ways. It allowed us to think more. Uh, it gave us time we would not otherwise have had. And from that, ca- characters that now exist on the show that did not exist before were born and whole circumstances and through lines and connections and big ideas. So in that sense, the pandemic ended up being a massive gift for us because were it not for that time, I don't know if the show would have happened to be honest with you obviously there are incredibly big and, and relevant themes in the book that would have been relevant anyway but how how has the pandemic kind of reshaped that and and how have the themes that were already strong in the book um become more pronounced you know in a, you know looking at it through the, the eyes of the pandemic well i can say that um the pandemic certainly made me and i i think i can speak for alex think about what was freaking important and um you know look when we read what we've written and we sound really clever, we immediately know we're complete assholes and we got to throw it away. And it forced us to be honest and sort of as brave as we could be. I was 
afraid with families. We were thinking about our kids. You think about your life and you think what's important and what matters. And I think that it really made us lean into the human relationship part of this show. I think it did that. I think it gave us a wonderful, it's so funny because writers are like, yeah, it's a pandemic. I can use it. And we're the worst, just the worst. But it brought the emotional and human and relationship part of this show to the forefront in a way that I don't know would have happened had it been, I'm going to say, sort of business as usual, whatever that means. Is it an adaptation process or have you kind of skimmed through the book and then kind of put it to one side and, and this is very much a different beast? How have you used the book to make the series? Well, yes, we read the book, I think took the spirit of the book, uh, many of the ideas from the book and built on them. We also took the same approach with the film. The thing that made me nervous initially was that A, neither of us wanted to repeat what had been done. B, it did not feel like this particular moment in time when people were living in a state of fear would be the best time to tell a story about an alien who comes to save his planet and then fails abjectly and die, you know, more or less disappears an alcoholic. It just didn't feel like this was the time for that story to be told. That being said, that was the story that Walter Tevis wrote and we needed to honor it, but we needed to build on it somewhere else. So back to your original question, the show takes you to some very dark places and to some very light places. And, and ultimately, I think our intention was to be a mirror to what was happening around us. But we did not want to make a show that felt so wildly depressing that it didn't affirm what was best about human beings. And the only way to really get to what's best about human beings is also to portray what's worst about human beings and to give the audience the tools to decide where they stand in relation to that question. So it was less about moralizing or making a show where we want you to eat your vegetables or a lot of political commentary, although there's certainly a lot of politics in the show and more about saying this is the state of the world as we see it right now in all of its beauty and wonder and glory and mystery and imagination and surprise and discovery and in all of its venality and all of its ugliness and, and in all of its danger. And I think that it was obviously a major chunk to bite off to tell that kind of story. But it also felt like if you're sitting at home in a pandemic, not able to go outside trying to make sense of the world, the best way to do that is probably to write about it. So that's really where it came from for us. What were those, I guess, in the writer's room, what were the, some, maybe some of the, the key themes you talked about or, or particularly the, the relationships that we see in the show? What were those important ones that you wanted us to, to see and, and how were those developed through the scripts to the screen, really? We wanted to talk about um, the relationship that our lead, Nami Harris, the character of Justin Falls, certainly wanted to talk about the relationship she has with herself, which I think is the one that all of us struggle with probably the most. Um, imagine going to dinner with yourself. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and that was so intriguing. A, a woman who put her own light sort of on hold. And it did feel sort of covid in the sense of that we were all, you know, we're all sort of in the bunker. Um, and she had put herself in an emotional bunker and in an intellectual bunker for a really long time for a lot of cool, re for a lot of important cool reasons, a lot of important reasons. And uh, I think that she, we can say that she became a, afraid of her own light and her own power. And it's her journey back and that journey to finding that again. Seems like something that everybody was going through. What, ha who am I? How, what happened to me? How can I find myself again? And that seems pretty universal. And that relationship exists also within the character of Faraday, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, um, and within the role of Josiah Falls, played by Clark Peters, who's 
Justin's father, and certainly in, in the role of Thomas Jerome Newton, played by Bill Nye. So all these characters, be they terrestrial or not, are struggling with who they were and who they are and who they're going to become. And that's what everybody is, Duke, I think, dukes it out with, like, you know, two in the morning. That's when you wake up and talk. When that's what you think about. That's what we wanted to write about. And from the first five minutes that, that people have seen and, and I've watched as well, and obviously it's, it's Faraday doing a TED talk, I guess, essentially. It seems to be that way anyway. And, and he sort of tells us that he's going to tell his story. So is that kind of his perspective that we follow through the series? Or do you do you mix up the structure and, and play with it a bit more? How do you follow the characters through the story? Without spoiling too many things, <laughs> I think both Faraday and Justin are our emotional entry point, but particularly Justin, because Justin is really us. You know, um, she's the one I think audiences will instantly be able to connect to or relate to because she's so deeply human. I think you'll be able to relate to Faraday instantly because played by Chiwetel, he's so likable and in need and he's he's an innocent, a wide-eyed innocent in a lot of ways. So you, you will connect to him and his plight, I think, just, just based on that. The show begins to play around a lot with structure. And the reason that we play around a lot with structure is because one of the things we talked about early in the writer's room is that our favorite shows are the ones you can't stay ahead of. The minute you start to see the formula and you're like, I kind of know where it's going, even if it's really, really well executed, there's something about that that takes the surprise or the engagement away for me fully. And again, part of the gift of time that we had to write this was that we really got to think about a superstructure that would hopefully surprise people at every step of the way. So yes, you'll be following their stories, but you will also be following many other character stories. And ultimately where he is in that five minute sequence that you saw will take on new context as you begin to unpack the various stories. And and you've mentioned some of the, the cast there. I mean, it's a really strong cast, but I mean, particularly with, with Chiwetel and, and Naomi starring, I guess, together in, in the show's sort of main leads. I mean, what would you just say to them about why you pick them for the roles and, and what they bring to the show? Well, can I say a thing, which is when Chiwetel, Edgy Four, and Naomi Harris respond to your script, you don't pick nothing. You just say thank you and, <laughs> and just get, stand out of, get out of their way. The same with Bill, the same with Clark, the same with our smaller parts, Rob Delaney, Zoe Wanamaker, and Juliet Stevenson, and Sonia Cassidy. I mean, every single person, I don't know, every, you know, it's one of those pinch yourself kind of casts. And I'm, we're thrilled that everyone responded and we're lucky to have them. And they all, they also are lovely people. And uh, I was wondering, you know, wait a minute, there's always kind of a jerk on set. Who's the jerk on set? And I couldn't figure out who it was. So I figured it was me, but um, they could not be, could not be a more lovely, committed bunch. And Anela Yalawe, who is, plays Molly, who is nine, is a British actress who had to do an American accent and learn all those lines and do her scenes with all these BAFTA winners. I mean, and she brought it. She brought it. So we were lucky. One more thing. I can't stop talking. I've had a lot of caffeine. Sorry. But Alex directed the bulk of this show. And every single actor has said that they felt so free because of what he was providing for them. So to talk about them is one thing. And Alex, I never say anything nice about Alex to his face. So I'm going to go like this. But Alex held those actors in a way that allowed them to be really free. And that was really exciting to watch. Yeah, I was going to I was going to ask, I guess, maybe Alex, in your role as a director, but both of you as executive producers, then when you were kind of getting into production, what uh, in a pandemic, what are some of those things that kept you awake at night on this show? And, and what were the challenges that you had? There's, I was going to, is there a lot of VFX or is it a lot of practical effects that you've done? How have you sort of managed to make the show? I mean, it's 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 all of the above. There's enormous amounts of visual effects, enormous amounts of practical effects 
effects. We shot it on two continents. We shot it in London. We shot it in Spain. We shot it all over the place. And, you know, we're building multiple worlds, not just Faraday's home planet, but multiple places on Earth that are exotic and incredibly complicated. Everything kept me up at night, but... <laughs> I would say that the most important thing was that I think because Jenny and I and John and, and, and our writing staff had spent so much time building scripts that I think we understood so deeply, the biggest thing was making sure that the micro nuances weren't falling away to the bigger things. And I knew that at the end of the day, if we had amazing spectacle, but the characters weren't really singing, it wouldn't work. So first and foremost was locking in with our characters, which meant locking in with our actors. And I feel like the process, the best directors fall in love with their actors, which allows the actors to fall in love with their director. And then suddenly you are all a family and you are all seeing the same thing and you are all living in something together and you become highly attuned to each other's needs and to each other's little idiosyncrasies. And you start seeing things in each other's, in each other's work that elevates the whole. And I don't think you can fully get there without that emotional commitment. So when you have actors who are, as gifted as the ones that we worked with. Part of your job is really, I think Jenny's father was was one of the people, Jenny, I, I think I'm right. He said something like casting is like 70% of the job or something like mm -hmm. that. And it's really true because once you've cast correctly, then part of your job, I would say maybe another 10% or 15% is just to stand back and let the actors do what you've hired them to do. But then there's, the, there's that percentage that's sort of critical where you must create a foundation of trust with each other because great performances come from a sense of freedom. Great performances come from a sense that they're not being judged and they can do anything and they can even do the wrong thing. But you can't, an actor can't access that in themselves if they don't feel free and they don't feel trusted and they don't feel trust in the person who they're working with. And so my job was to create that trust for everybody all the time so that we could we could explore these things together. And every actor has a, a wildly different process. Naomi does not like to rehearse at all. Chiwetel wants to rehearse every single moment before. And that was a wonderful thing for me because I got to, I had my own learning curve in terms of what their needs were and how to meet them. And the fact that they're, Naomi said this this weekend when we were at South by Southwest, but I think that their different styles and different approaches actually leads to a certain kind of chemistry on screen that's very special because they're both wildly rigorous actors. Nobody up there is lazy, not for one second, but the way they get where they're going is very different. And so you see this kind of collision and friction and energy that's going on between them, you know, one who has really metabolized and premeditated every single micro movement and one who is discovering her movement in the moment. And that is special. Um, so that's a very long winded way of saying that part of the job is just to create the environment for that magic to happen. And I'll let you go on this, but I mean, when audiences have watched it in South by Southwest or they're going to be seeing it in Lille, in Series Mania or elsewhere around the world, I mean, what are some of those nuances that you mentioned that maybe those emotional touch points that you hope will connect with viewers? Is where, wherever they are and, and makes this a story that is relevant yet, you know, entertaining, I guess, at the same time. I think maybe our secret weapon is humor. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing you're not expecting from the story, particularly because the novel and the film are so deeply despondent in a lot of ways. There is a melancholy that I think the show carries because it's carrying the DNA of that material. But because Jenny and I and John and everybody wanted to, to, to ultimately do a show that, that shows the best of humanity, I think the best way to 
really take those messages in is to make people laugh. So again, in the spirit of being very unexpected, which is what we tried to do at every turn on the show, there's so much humor. And when we were at South by one of the great joys was every moment that was supposed to be a laugh got one. Mm -hmm. And when you know, when you hear people, this is the first time we'd ever seen it with an audience, but when you hear an audience talking to a screen, actively talking to the screen, you know that you've got that. Who was that? That was that person. I love that. There were a couple people around you were hearing like really talking to the screen. And it was awesome. That was a really great thing because that's ultimately why you, that's why you make something for a theater. Right. Well, I can't wait to see more of it. You know, best of luck with everything. And, you know, are you, is this a, a permanent partnership now? Or are you kind of, you know, there's going to be an ampersand between your names in future or is it? Uh, we you know? have like <laughs> the most disturbing psychic ampersand <laughs> in the entire world. Like yesterday I was wearing plaid and I never wear freaking plaid. And I'm like, I'm turning into Alex Gersman. <laughs> I was wearing plaid too. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm turning into Jenny now. Alex Kurtzman and Jenny Lume speaking to Michael Picard about Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth. That's all for this episode, but don't forget to visit C21 and Drama Quarterly for more from Series Mania. You can hear more discussion by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll hear new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.